Welcome to another episode of the International History Now podcast with me, Yorgos Yanakopoulos and Dina Gyusenov. Talking about democracy in America is such a classic theme in political thought that it would almost seem too commonplace to raise it as such, were it not for the current situation and the recent election. More voters turned up than ever before in an American election. More than 160 million, about 66.9% of the electorate. The result was close but decisive, or at least not as indecisive as other past closed election outcomes. And yet, The sitting president and those around him refuse to accept the people's verdict. The American election has created a closely watched spectacle across the world. The interests of those watching are as widely divergent as those of the American electorate itself. However much this election might give some grounds for relief, it is hardly a cause for a moment of celebration. It is a passing moment in a much more protracted crisis revolving around the state of American democracy as a vanguard project standing in the revolutionary tradition of the Enlightenment, the question of America's place and role in the world, issues of racial justice and socioeconomic imbalances across the U.S. and indeed across the wider world. With us to discuss the theme of democracy in America are Jeannie Moorfield, who is senior lecturer in political theory at the University of Birmingham and also the co-president of the Association for Political Theory and also a fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Jeannie is the author of key works on modern imperialism and its place in the Anglo-American world. Then we have Sam Moyne, who is Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and also Professor of History at Yale University. Sam has authored a number of much-discussed books in intellectual history and the history of political thought, particularly in the history of human rights, and he is a regular commentator on key aspects of um, American political life. Last but not least, we have Charles Smith, who is Distinguished Professor of Playwriting and Ohio University Presidential Research Scholar in the Arts and Humanities, um, and also a playwright who has received numerous um, accolades um, and also has taught uh, creative writing uh, far beyond uh, the United States. Many of Charles's plays focus on the agency of leading um, African-American and pan-African thinkers and activists. Throughout the program, um, we'll be listening to the song Bottle Up and Go, recorded in 1941 by blues guitarist Buster Buzz Ezel from the Library of Congress collection of folk music from the American South. But we want to begin uh, by um, asking Sam um, to um, comment on some rather provocative pieces that you've published recently. The latest one for the New York Review uh, was titled How Trump Won. And you discuss an aspect of Trump's impact in, in what you call the neoliberal, in breaking the, what you call the neoliberal consensus of the Beltway. Uh, previously, you've intervened in current political debates by highlighting the anti-democratic character of the U.S. Supreme Court. So in short, you're wearing different rhetorical hats um, as a historian, as a legal theorist, as public intellectual. So what comes to mind uh, to you first when you hear the phrase democracy in America today? Uh, to begin with, it's really nice to be with you uh, on colleagues and, and friends I admire to discuss this topic. And I'm just one citizen among others. And like my fellow citizens, likely wrong about a lot of things. I look back at this period that now seems to be closing Donald Trump's administration and begin with um, something I think we see more clearly now that as of 2016, there wasn't much democracy in America. Um, it was a highly partial democracy, even at the point that Donald Trump could begin his extraordinary rise. And to me, even to this day, what that rise most clearly signified is a delegitimation for lots and lots of people of existing elites um, who had kind of kind of handed power back and forth through my lifetime with mostly similar views across party lines. Um, and so, you know, where are we now? Well, the Republicans, in spite of trying, have not gotten their party back. I mean, I actually think Donald Trump has not been as con in control of his party as a lot of others think, but he's clearly radically changed the nature of the Republican Party. And the Democrats, 
whatever they've done in response um, has not led them to decisive victory, which is kind of an extraordinary thing after four years of attempting to delegitimate the kind of forces that led Trump to first beat the, his fellow Republicans and then Hillary Clinton. So we're in a very divided country with deep need for systemic reform. And I'm, you know, not very hopeful that we will get it, to be honest, in any near future. Thanks, Sam. Jeannie, you're an American academic currently based in the UK, and you have written extensively on modern imperialism and the Anglo-American world. Do you share, as it were, Sam's pessimistic outlook? How does democracy in America look from the other side of the pond to you? Um, thanks. And uh, also with Sam, just wanted to say thank you guys for inviting me to do this with these great group of people. No, I, I um, share Sam's pessimism, actually. And um, I, as a scholar, work a lot on this narratives that I see at work in states uh, that are nominally liberal, but have um, extensive empires. And in the case of the U.S., have extensive, you know, um, settler colonial empire as well. And, and there's a language that we see over and over again in these states. And that's the language that where people are constantly saying, well, we, we can't actually be like that because that's not who we are. And, um, this is the, the fallback rhetoric for the Democrats for the, for, I mean, for forever. Right. But, you know, I, I got a really bad sense right before this election because it was feeling a lot like 2016, a lot of obsessive Nate Silvering and, you know, reaching out to the Lincoln Project and a bullions about a gender gap that never materialized. And I just kept thinking, you know, the Democrats clearly didn't learn the thing that they needed to learn four years ago, which was to figure out why people voted for Donald Trump. And instead, they just deflected. They would say, you know, Trump didn't win because the Russians stole it and that's not who we are. And Trump didn't win because, you know, it was the left's fault. They weren't enthusiastic enough and that's not who we are. Um, as this all was rolling out this year and this this relentless cant of, you know, this can't actually be who we are. We can't possibly have elected a, a man who's acting like a third world dictator. We can't possibly be that. And then for this stunning realization that in fact, 70 million people voted for this guy who's a completely anxious huckster. And um, that, you know, that is just stunning to me. And so I keep thinking from on this side of the pond that, empires empires in denial of their own um own violence their own complicity own capacity to you know ignore what's in front of their eyes and decline and um and that seems to be pretty much where we are i feel like if we don't like regardless of whether or not Trump is able to scuttle this election legally. It's the the well has been completely poisoned. Um, there's th going to be 70 million people who believe the next president was elected um, illegitimately. I don't know how you come back from that. And I feel like the only way to do it would be to engage in the kind of self-reflection that would lead you to the structural changes that Sam alluded to. And I really worry, and this is a horrible place to be as an American and a human, um, but I really worry that that the ship has sailed on that one. Thanks, Jeannie. Um, you've raised just uh, just a number of different aspects of the, of the current situation, but maybe one element that um, I would like to to highlight and actually ask Charles to, to comment um, on in the light of, um, of his work and his activism also is um, the question of, of racism as an aspect of uh, understanding the, the motivational character, I suppose, of the Trump vote. Um, and if one thinks uh, now of uh, the, the, the leadership or the, the presence of Kamala Harris as vice president and her speech, um, one shouldn't forget that the, there is an element of um, rhetorical hope, at least, or, or, or hope in, the, in terms of the symbolic display of power that, that is now um, now visible. I mean, it was certainly a moving moment to see the audience uh, witnessing her speech. Uh, my question for Charles really is, I mean, you've uh, 
focused in your writing very much on engaging with the agency of of, of leading African American activists, but also Pan African thinkers or uh, activists like Marcus Garvey. Um, and you've um, you've also reached out uh, in a way to Europeans in in highlighting the sort of uh, sometimes forgotten presence of Africans in European canonical works, as in your play um, Les Trois Dumas um, and uh, you know a number of other works. So I'm just wondering, um, first of all, I mean, can you just explain to us a little bit where you see the place of this kind of creative work and specifically historic drama in, uh, I mean, to put it bluntly, solving contemporary problems? Um, and and how do you experience the current moment? Well, thank you. Um, and I, I'd like to um, uh, echo my colleagues. Um, thanks for being here. I'm, um, I'm, this is, I'm just delighted to be here and delighted to have this conversation. Um, while Jeannie was a little bleak in her assessment, um, you know, I think she's probably on the money with a lot of this stuff. We're looking at this as a contemporary problem, but when you look at American history, this issue is not that contemporary. Uh, we have seen this attack and this sort of move, you know, it started this, this sort of separation of the poor people the black, separating the black and the white started, it began slavery, you know, as I'm, I'm not going to go back too far, but slavery started uh, late 1600s, there were indentured blacks and whites. And the indentured Nathaniel Bacon got together all of these indentured blacks and whites. And they said, we have power, we are poor, we have power, we can overtake these few landowners. And what the landowners did was start giving property, a little bit of property, to the poor whites. And that separated them. And the poor whites then had incentive to keep the blacks down because they had a little bit more. And that was the beginning of this sort of African slavery here in this uh, country. We saw it happen again at the Reconstruction. Um, we saw it happen at the Civil Rights Movement. Barry Goldwater. You know, Barry Goldwater, when running for president, um, did said exactly what Donald Trump said. You know, Barry Goldwater said, you know, if you go with Lyndon Johnson, you will vote for mobs in the streets. Um, it could be a quote from Donald Trump. Richard Nixon had the same strategy, the exact same strategy. And so what we see Donald Trump doing is nothing new. This has been the foundation of this country from the very beginning. Um, while I know that uh, a lot of whites are shocked by the rise of Donald Trump, dismayed, stunned, you know, a lot of black folks are not. A lot of black folks are looking at this saying, what, you know, this is not a surprise. It's not a surprise that he has come into power because he's always been on the cusp of power. Either him and people like him have always been on the cusp of power. While um, Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, Lyndon Johnson had to make that choice. If he was gonna separate, if he was gonna sort of uh, turn his back on Southern whites. And he did it and it changed the political landscape when he signed that bill. So, you know, Donald Trump and this sort of Donald Trump movement, this racism movement, has always been on the cusp of American pol politics. It's always been right under the surface from the very founding of this country. So his rise to a lot of Blacks who are politically aware is not the new. You know, the big joke uh, election night, 2016, Saturday Night Live, you know, the you know, a comedy program had all of these people at this party and all of these whites sort of, you know, moaning and bemoaning, how could this happen? And, you know, the two black guys sitting there going, you know, are you surprised about this? And that was the mood in the country, in my neighborhood, in my community, in the black community. It's like, yeah, you know, yeah, we've been waiting for this. It's always been right there. 
And just to follow up on this, um, I mean, I had some of the uh, some of the experience. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of looking at American politics from outside, but I have lived in the in the United States for um, a couple of years, and I lived in Chicago and um, I taught at the University of Chicago, and I experienced it as quite a segregated kind of um, existence, really. And 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 there was a kind of strange bifurcation in a way there of. Um, yeah, of just observing how how people respond to specific current events, let me put it like that. But um, what I'm particularly wondering about, um, so how do we get from your views of sort of American society, your uh, historically informed pessimism, I suppose, um, to your work, right? I mean, what, what motivates you to do the kind of thing you do and how do you shape specific, um, you know, choices? Because, I mean, just to follow up on, I, I've read a recent review of your uh, your play on, on Du Bois and... Um, I mean, W.B. Du Bois is, is probably, um, in my experience of teaching in liberal, liberal arts kind of context, is, is probably the only leading established African-American thinker who is sort of on a par included in the sort of the canon, the liberal canon in a way of, um, um, of uh, well, teaching undergraduates. But at the same time, your play, as I understand it from the review, also highlights some of um, his sort of character weaknesses, I suppose, or kind of it presents him certainly as a human being. Um, I don't know, I was sort of interested, who are you writing for? And, well, what what is the role of the stage there in, in sort of in this current or maybe long-term historical situation? Well, boy, who am I writing for? I'm not quite sure. I am telling a story that I think I would like to see and that I think is important. And, you know, the interesting thing about the Du Bois play is that while Du Bois is certainly a pivotal figure in the play, the play is actually about his daughter. And his daughter, who virtually nobody knows, and his daughter who made a huge sacrifice in her life, and I think is tantamount to some of the work that uh, Du Bois did in a very personal way. Uh, my goal here is to, you know, Du Bois is iconic. No question about it, iconic. And there's a, you know, I have a little bit of a issue with that because we look at him as an icon and not a person. Then the question becomes for me as a young man, when I was a young man, or other young men, other young black men in this country, am I iconic? And ultimately the answer is no. Now, if you look at him as a person who is struggling with issues and who's doing the best he can, then with other young black men in this country, they ask themselves, am I doing the best I can? Am I struggling with some of these issues? And the answer is yes. Therefore, the conclusion from my point of view is I can be like Du Bois. I can still achieve even though I am not perfect. Want to see something scandalous? How about the real life scandal about the marriage of County Cullen to Yolanda Du Bois, the daughter of W.E.B. Du Bois, set in the Harlem Renaissance in 1928? This true life story is on stage at Jubilee Theater. You and I have been chosen, Yolanda. Answer my question. We have a job to do. We have to figure out a way to do that job without laying out our intros for the vultures to eat. That means we have to be smart, we have to be vigilant, and we have to keep certain things in our lives private. You know, we look at somebody like Martin Luther King, who is another iconic figure. And we're at a point in our revisionist American history where we look at Martin Luther King and we says, oh, he was so great, he was so great. But when you start digging into what he was for, there's a lot of people who don't wanna hear about his policy on um, poverty. They don't wanna hear about his stand against um, the Vietnam War. And I, you know, I was a young man when he was assassinated, old enough to remember, however, the celebration in this country, the absolute jubilation in certain segments of this country when he was assassinated. To hear Martin Luther Kuhn is dead. And of course, my community grieved, but a great portion of American society celebrated his assassination. We have forgotten that. 
And it's important that we don't forget that. We don't forget that he did rub people the wrong way. So when we look at our current leaders who are robbing people the wrong way, we understand that, yes, um, history is going to judge us. And then American history is going to try to sort of revise it, but we can't let that revisionist, that revisionist history happen. Thanks, Charles. I want to bring in Sam here on, on this point uh, that was raised about certain communities in America, Trumpism or whatever came wasn't really that much of a surprise. And obviously, moment of reckoning with regards to Black Lives Matter, if we were some to complicate the picture of what is democracy in America today, rather, in light of all these recent movements, what kind of image would we come up with? Or, you know, is there any other way of facing this rather bleak present? Well, so, I mean, I think the, all three of us began with some some pessimism. So let me, you know, without taking it back and totally signing on to what Charles as and Jeannie have said, kind of restore a little bit of optimism. Um, because I, I do think we can see, even if we just look at, you know, the persistence of white supremacy, some, you know, novel events in the past four years, you know, before that, a, an African-American was elected president. And yet, you know, very little to nothing was done, including with a black attorney general about mass incarceration or black poverty, or indeed to come to, you know, what, Charles mentioned about Martin Luther King at the end of his life, American War, which, you know, Obama also continued in various, um, you know, graphic and subtle ways. Um, since then, I, I think um, what Trump has allowed is um, a, a broader recognition than at any time in my lifetime, since I wasn't alive in the late 60s, of just how deep white supremacy goes. Um, you know, the 1619 project uh, is is just the most kind of, you know, prominent example of the way that Trump has forced Americans to revisit history they should have known and come to grips with realities that are obvious to anyone who, you know, opens their eyes. Um, and it 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 seemed to many of us like there was even radical hope available. Um, we still have some of those insights from 1619 or, you know, you know, African-American columnist Jamel Bowie, who's constantly reminding a huge number of readers um, hired, you know, it, during the Trump administration to kind of communicate the, the dark truths of American history and, you know, many of us thought there was going to be a reckoning in this last election, um, even if Bernie Sanders in, in the Democratic Party lost with some of that history. Now, as I said at the beginning, that optimism was wrong. The country is extraordinarily divided. You know, most disturbingly, it seems as if more minorities voted for Donald Trump a in this in this last election, not just compared to the first time he ran, but compared to any Republican since the civil rights movement began. So we're grappling with a big obstacle to the recognition, and yet it's also more widespread than before. And so the question is, of all you know, like once again about the Democrats, how do they capitalize on? you know, a new generation that's kind of picking up um, some of the truncated recognition that Charles, you know, talked about from the 1960s, you know, aren't going to rest content with the bland canonization of Martin Luther King Jr., but are facing, you know, um, listening to a broader set of voices and listening to King himself um, and beginning to think about r real reform to, to the country, which has been you know, shirked for, for my lifetime. So it's not immediate. Um, it's not going to happen under Joe Biden, not least because the Republicans retain control and that there, it, there are these dark forces, which are assuming scary form. Um, and it's not as if they'll just go away, but, um, it, it, it's not unthinkable that the left could have some kind of breakthrough. It's just much more delayed than many of us 
you know, permitted ourselves to hope. Thanks, Sam. But just getting um, slightly away from um, the immediate political analysis, I'm just wondering about, uh, I mean, this is a question to all of you, but about your practice as teachers or teaching practice. Um, but it's specifically a question to Jeannie, because you've argued in a um, recent article in uh, Political Theory, I believe, that Uh, there's a need for what you called urgent history and kind of, uh, you know, you want to reclaim um, what you call the lost voices in political theory. I mean, could you say a bit about your ideas there, but also perhaps more widely? I mean, what are um, maybe the changes you would urge uh, would have to be made in terms of simply the historical narrative and the narrative of the history of political thought, political theory um, that would um, maybe... Um, help people get out of this kind of echo chamber vision maybe of of history that some of us probably lived in? It's a really interesting question. So from my own strange uh, hybrid of political theory and history and international politics, um, what my, my impulse is always to push against um, canonizations or narratives that that try and set up for us um, the appropriate, either appropriate questions or keep us from making connections. And uh, I think it's Sam's point about the fact that, you know, that we, that we would have thought that we would be confronting the long history of, uh, of settler colonialism and slavery and Jim Crow and consistent um, sort of forms of economic and political violence in this country and the fact that we keep not, um, I, you know, to my mind, so I'm not going to harp on the democratic party anymore. I mean, I've been, I've been spending a week and a half in rage, so I'm just going to let that go in my own practice. I think the work that I do right I'm just finishing a book on Edward Said. And, um, so I'm writing about Said's absolute insistence that we connect history to politics, to um, the long history of imperialism, and that we do that by effectively as public intellectuals. Um, and he had really very little tolerance for anyone who wasn't a public intellectual. Um, if you were going to be a scholar on the left, you needed to engage the public because it's public intellectuals that sustain the all of the ideological work that keeps imperialism going. And he said, so the thing you have to do is you have to actually see yourself as a part of the connections between your society, your in particular imperial society, and the all of the things that sustain imperialism. So you are of the affiliations in Said's mind between the U.S. and its relationship with the rest of the world. And so if you see yourselves as both affiliated and embedded and of all of these, um, of, you know, these these connections, then, then you start ma making the kinds of observations about history that allow you to effectively, you know, challenge the narratives that, that enable the unseeing or the forms of, in, of deflection. And in particular for Said, it means consistently, consistently and radically challenging the we voice wherever it pops up, not to say that we can't speak in a we voice, right? That we can't have the communities of solidarity, that we can't actually make arguments that speak from groups, but that it has to be reflective. And so for Said, he was constantly saying, you know, don't, you can't ask these kinds of questions that you ask in political philosophy, like what do we owe the global poor or what are our intuitions about justice or, but it's always about, denaturalizing the we in a global context historically. And I think, you know, that's exactly what needs to happen sort of conceptually to do the kind of work that we need to be doing right now politically. And um, I don't know if you guys read the amazing interview that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gave to the New York Times, but she had this great line where she said, um, she said, we know that race is a problem and avoiding it is not going to solve any electoral issues. We have to actively dissolve the potential influence of racism at the polls. And in part, that's going to take a broad, um, historically oriented project that really um, brings to the fore the, the, kind, the ways in which um, the sort of 
violent legacies of racism that are still condition America today, can can the way that we can bring them to the surface, talk about them and disarm them, um, I think that that's exactly what needs to happen. And so in my practice, as a as a scholar and as someone who tries to think publicly, it's the always for me that destabilization of the we um, and to in order to see what kinds of connections and affiliations are hiding behind it. Thanks, Virginia. I want to bring in Charles on this, on the question of practice, on the questions of strategies of resistance. How do we go about with our own practice? How do we see ourselves acting through our work? Boy, I think that's pretty interesting um, what Jeannie was saying, this, um, this idea of the we. And if, if I can ask, so if we don't speak in the we, are we speaking in the singular person, the me? No. What can I do? It's not so much about not speaking in the we, it's that all we's need to be reflective so that they have to be self-aware. So he's not saying, and I, I mean, this is what I get from Saeed, it's not that there is no we, because obviously there is, but there, but it needs to be um, internally interrogated and self-reflective. I see, I see. Um, so thank you. Um, what we can do or where we are, I, you know, I, first of all, I think we should be a democracy. And we're not a democracy, you know. This idea of electoral electoral college, and you know this this thing with the Senate, um, you know, you have a state like uh, one of the Dakotas that, you know, uh, you know, they have less than a million people, and you know, they have two senators, and less than a million, you know, seven hundred thousand people, they have two senators. You look at California, they have two senators, they have forty million. So it's not, you know, we're not represented. You know, the population centers are not represented. The centers in this country that are doing the hard work, that are thinking, that are coming to these realizations, the places and the people who are equipped to make these changes happen do not have representation in our government. And we need to change that. We need to get rid of the Electoral College. You know, here we have a president uh, elect, presumably Biden, who won, it looks like this morning, by 5 million votes close to 5 million votes. But still, I hear people say, well, you know, it's a close election. Yeah, when you count this sort of skewed uh, political system, we talk about tearing down monuments to slavery. Well, the Electoral College is the biggest monument to slavery that's still controlling how we function. And, you know, I hear people talk about, you know, the Democratic Party, you know, the Democratic Party is the lesser of two evils. And, you know, I'm going to make it clear. I'm from Chicago. I'm a Democrat. And you, you don't know what it, it means to be a Democrat unless you're from Chicago. You know, I grew up with the Democratic machine. You go in to vote in Chicago, and there was a time when there are big machines, and you flip one switch, and you pull the lever, and you vote straight ticket. So you didn't even have to look at all of the everything that was on the ballot. You just punch the button that says Democrat, you pull the lever, and everything that was on that Democratic side, you voted for. And it might be 15 people. And so when you talk about being a Democrat from Chicago, you talk about hardcore Democrat. That is who I am. But I will tell you that the Democratic Party is the lesser of two evils, because even they are still more invested in staying in power. And you know, the only way we're going to wrestle this power you know, when we, when we talk about changing um, the sort of race, um, this sort of white supremacy, people have to give up power. That's the problem. You know, you talk conceptually, you get a bunch of people in the room and you talk conceptually, everything's beautiful. Everybody says, oh, yeah, I'm not a racist. I'm going to do what I can to end racism. And we talk conceptually, and it's all flowers. It's all perfume and flowers. But you put limited money in the room, and you say, okay, now we've got to divide this power. We've got to divide these resources. And all of this thing about all of these, these conceptual ideas about equality and fairness, it goes out of the window. Because my fairness is more important than your fairness and it just goes out the window.
by Charles's big picture where, you know, you've seen a lot of rhetoric of, of fairness, but not much actual empowerment of subordinated peoples, um, especially racially subordinated peoples. And as many times as you can say that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice and, you know, our values are this or that, what, what really needs to happen is a challenge and to power and, and its redistribution. You know, not that um, we don't ultimately have to look to the Democratic Party and, and Democratic politics. I grew up in, you know, a few hours from Chicago and St. Louis and spent half my life there. And, you know, if you'd told me even five years ago that, you know, my congressman, Bill Clay, and his son, uh, Lacey Clay, would be, you know, thrown out uh, in favor of Cory Bush, I would not have believed you, yet it happened. And so what I see then is, you know, the potential of democracy, which requires hard work, but then the the obstruction of, of minority rule institutions, which allow, uh, you know, a fading white minority and especially a, a wealthy minority um, to to control American politics, even when even when that minority, you know, can't find the votes. And, um, you know, as Charles mentioned, there's the Electoral College in the Senate. The Supreme Court, um, you know, has not really been a beneficent actor in American history, um, you know, basically on the side of, of minority rule all along. I mean, occasionally putting mistakes it made at the end of Reconstruction, like in Plessy v. Ferguson, right? That's what happened in Brown v. Board, but doing very little under its own power to provide, you know, more structural forms of justice and especially um, economic justice. And so, you know, to my way of thinking, we need to like stop romanticizing the Supreme Court, especially now that it's under control thanks to Mitch McConnell in our, you know, Senate of the right wing, it's real bastion of, of power with, you know, six now conservative justices. And so, you know, that debate is not going to um, lead to much action now, because if the Senate remains closer, even in McConnell's control, once again, Joe Biden will not be able to pass any legislation, let alone get his justices confirmed or even his lower court judges confirmed. So, um, but you, you know, there's this, there's this intellectual and political project of how to face down the broader institutions of, of minority rule, because I think that, you know, although more slowly than I would like, based on the recent returns, you, you do see a lot of promise in, you know, where the younger generation, you know, not just AOC, but, you know, Jamal Bowman, Corey Bush, many others want to take this, you know, kind of hidebound, senescent Democratic Party that, you know, that we've all been living with and complaining about for decades. Um, the only way out is through its renovation and then through some kind of confrontation with these institutions of minority rule. And so it's not a question of if, it's a question of when that will happen. Thanks, Sam. On your point of minority rule, uh, and, and, and indeed what um, Charles said earlier, I want to bring in Jeannie here and get you, Jeannie, to reflect on, on exactly these kinds of dynamics. Where do you think things ought to be going from now on? One of the things that's interesting is, I just was thinking about this the other day, like, what more do Republican lawmakers actually want? Like, they live in a country where, thanks to Reagan and Clinton, neoliberal and trade agreements basically ensure the distribution of wealth goes to the people they wanted to. They live in a country where the insurance industry benefits totally from the Affordable Care Act, and they live in a country with a trillion dollar a year defense budget that isn't contested by Democrats. 
and uh, a country where Bill Clinton and the DNC participated in creating the mass incarceration that continues to disenfranchise, you know, many, many black and Latino voters every year. So like, and now they have the Supreme Court they want. So I can't, I keep thinking like, what more do they want? And then I, I just, I think they are like addicts. They just want more, like no matter what they have, it's never right enough. It's never Christian enough. It's never militarized enough. It's never racist enough. And so I think that what needs to happen is the Democrats absolutely have to stop this language. Um, and this is awful, right? Because I was, I'm a good social justice Catholic. That was how I was raised. And like to say, I think we need to stop talking about healing. I think we need to stop talking about healing. Like, I think we need to actually, like, we need to really it, just admit that this, this is a kind of, of like hegemonic war of position and really, really, lean into the kind of structural changes that need to happen. And I um, am deeply worried for all the reasons that both Charles and Sam talked about, that given the, the, the way that power works in America, that that is not going to be possible. And at the same time, I think that um, insurgent voices uh, are insisting that it has to be because if it isn't, then I just don't know what we're left with. And I don't know if you guys have been following the sort of massive rise of QAnon with the same kind of sick awe that I've been following, but it also seems to sort of capture everything that is most weird and wrong about the moment, which is that many, many, many people disagree about the very nature of reality. And, um, I, I honestly, unless the, unless people start actually talking about things other than these kinds of mystical or fantastical versions of what America is supposed to be at its core and get real, I don't see how that is going to change. I realize that I keep ending up with these absolutely maudlin and um, desperate conclusions You've caught me on a bad day. Thanks, Jeannie. <laughs> I just wanted to kind of acknowledge that the title of our conversation is lifted, of course, from Alexis de Tocqueville's classic, Democracy in America. And that um, just something to reflect on um, about the kind of expectations that international observers have, really, from goings on in America, let's say, broadly conceived. The interesting thing about this particular text was that it did start with observations of the police, policing and incarceration, if you like, like the points that you mentioned um, yourself as kind of being at the heart of understanding what's really going on uh, as opposed to the rhetoric of healing um and uh, and and of course you know policing is 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 also the theme that is really at everyone's mind now since the, at least the George Floyd protests and um the the murder of George Floyd but um what what I want to ask you really is um I mean where do you see the sort of expectation of um I don't know the global public uh, in a sense because it seems like that sort of two opposite tendencies going on at one level yes people uh maybe want some kind of uh, to observe how you know the system will be fixed or restructured or reorganized and yet there are also a number of people who really expect america to still continue being a leading some kind of example of democracy and def and actually be more active in, in the world and there's all this teaching of american history that has a specific rhetorical function i mean in british schools there's all this like civil rights um teaching that is organized around these sort of cathartic, positive stories. And yet uh, a lot of American scholarship, like Derek Bell's work, is actually suggesting that this is should not be treated in that way and so on. My impression is that there's a lot of public pressure from the international community, if there is such a thing, um, that, that leads to kind of insurmountable uh, problems regarding these two conclusions that you've all really made that it would be good to reduce the role of American empire and structural reform is necessary. It seems like people want kind of more than that. What do, what do you make of this? And also in your experiences of international observers uh, of America, do you have any, any views on what they think, how they respond, what's the function of American democracy as a international tool of discourse? 
I've been really amazed at the this sort of horror uh, about Donald Trump being a third world president, which I just find hilarious in a way. The, the number of times people will say he's acting like a third world dictator or he's you know, acting like a banana republic dictator and with absolutely zero reflection on the, you know, number of dictators the U.S. has imposed on people throughout the global south, um, you know, for the last hundred years, but mostly since 1949. And that in part, Dina, is, is because of the way that the story about the U.S. in the world is allowed to um to stand in for the actual presence of empire. I mean, that's my thinking. And so with the fact that Donald Trump, that, that it's come home should be a moment when we all say, okay, let's another, this like another moment where we can all say, let's wrestle with this. And, um, and I, there are some voices asking for that to happen. Um, there should be more. I hope what the international community is asking for is something more than a restoration of the way things were before Trump. Because once again, um, the way things were before Trump and the African-American community wasn't very attractive. Now, what was attractive and what has been attractive is the image that the U.S. Uh, projects across the world. And that image is mostly in in guise of our media, you know, our entertainment media, not our news media, our entertainment media. You know, you turn on the television and you see all of these uh, police shows. I, you know, whenever I travel outside the U.S., I like turning on the television and seeing what has been dubbed, overdubbed, and, and a lot of police dramas. And that gives the impression that uh, our justice system is something akin to the thing that we see in our entertainment when the reality is radically different, especially uh, in the African-American community. Uh, you look at the deterioration of the, the Fourth Amendment and mass incarceration, you know, this, you know, that resembles nothing like the image we are projecting. So if the international community is asking for a restoration of the world, of the U.S. the way it was before Trump, I would encourage the international community to take a hard look at that and maybe uh, set their goals and sights a bit higher. I think it's a great question, uh, Dina. I, I, you know, it, it is kind of amazing to recall that uh, Tocqueville came to visit America in the first place to kind of, you know, explain the success of American penal reform to his country and, you know, Europe uh, in, in general. And, you know, no one would, you know, have the illusion of, of, of embarking on that project now, even though, as Charles has said, there, there's something of, of the myth persisting that, um, you know, America has a successful ideological um model or at least a beneficent role in the world. I would, you know, return to Tocqueville's original um, diagnosis of American democracy and, and stress what he ended up learning. Um, although, I mean, he did write his, his penal report, but what I think he ended up learning is that, you know, democratic survival has psychological foundations. And, you know, as, as Jeannie has pointed out, those are very fragile um, because of um, the, you know, alternate realities in which different citizens now live. And, you know, I just want to stress it's it's not going to be good enough to scapegoat the right or, you know, tr Trump's voters, because if if the last four years have revealed anything, it's that it, you know, in, in one of our you know, expressions, uh, it takes two to tango and the, the conspiracy thinking amongst liberals to engage in a basic evasion of some of the country's pathologies has been almost as intense as on the other side. I mean, maybe nothing matches QAnon, but, um, a, a lot, uh, of, of what I see on, you know, Facebook and, 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 
you know, Twitter and not just there, but from esteemed columnists and reporters in mainstream media uh, seems unhinged and out of touch with kind of the basic facts of American history and the American present. So, you know, I think part of our our goal has to be like informational to get at this, you know, deep psychological problem that Tocqueville understood either allows for democracy to survive or will, you know, leave it on the brink of, of something even worse. Well, uh, thanks very much all. Thank you to Jeannie Moonfield, Charles Smith and Sam Moyne for uh, joining us.